Hi. Hello. Hey. How you doing? So good. Welcome back to the Wine About Birth podcast. We are three birth professionals. And best friends. And we're here to talk about what it's really like to live in the world of birth. It's not all glitter and rainbows. Or as we like to say, it's a lot more shit than giggles. I'm Kim Haynes, and I'm a midwife at a busy birth center and small home birth practice in Winchester. I'm Meredith Rout. I'm also a midwife and have a home birth practice in Winchester, Virginia. And I'm Jess McKee. I'm a doula that has nothing to do with that and also <laughs> a birth assistant at the same small out-of-hospital midwifery practice. <laughs> Nailed slow, it. Slow it down. Did we nail it? I had I to think. think. Someone's mean, phone's going off sorry, and we just started. Fine. I had to think real hard to, to get that straight. So we're pulling a double header. Double whammy. So many heads. This is our second episode of the day. Just Killing trying to it. cram them in. I made you a delicious lunch, though. You it did. It was so good. So, so delicious. I really enjoyed it. It felt very healthy. Mm-hmm. It was healthy. I weighed myself before we ate it, and I gained another pound, which makes me mad. because wow. Like from the salad? I don't know. No, <laughs> I, I weighed my, so. I think it was the uh, the gallon of ranch I poured on top but of But I've mine. been exercising, and I still gained another uh, two mass. pounds. That's what every fat gained. person says. <laughs> hey. <laughs> I weighed I my for curvy. I weighed myself at Premier last week. Oh, I hate that scale. I weighed 153 pounds. I don't know. I'm only 5'2. I don't know why I keep doing this to myself. Why do I keep weighing myself? Haley keeps telling me I need to get a tape measure and just do measurements. Or just look at yourself. Or just just love yourself. That doesn't work. I have body dysmorphia. You could do what I do and just remove all mirrors from the house. And then you can just know you're getting fat, but you never have to see it. Or get a thinning mirror like I have by accident. (laughs) It's like magical. But then I'll know it's a thinning mirror. So? So what? You still look good in it. Mm -hmm. Just so we know, we support all women being very curvy. I I love curvy. Have body dysmorphia for myself. I mean, I think most women do, unfortunately, in the culture that we have grown up in and continue to grow up in. That's true. So we'll never grow up. I really do like my fat boobs, though. Mm-hmm. They're the best. Yeah, they're very jiggly. That's part of my reason I don't know where I count is I don't want to lose my boobs. What boobs you have, you mean? I know. It's so <laughs> my fat boobs make my fat waist look smaller. I'm easily running three miles again now. It doesn't take me very long to get back into it. Mm-mm. I'm doing Pilates. Go you. My abs are so sore right now. I can barely sit up. I literally laid down on Meredith's car earlier <laughs> and I realized that it was a lot slipperier than amazing. I realized, but my abs are so sore. I couldn't stop it. And I just slid off the back <laughs> of the car. It was so slow too. I like could have stopped it, but I didn't want to. I was like, and so I can't to stop it. My abs are too sore to pick up my legs. My abs aren't sore, but I rolled over in the middle of the night last night and totally fucking pulled something in my abs. Oh, like my ab charlie horse and i was like hell out of shape am i right now i can't even roll over girls that one day i was laid up in bed i literally was stretching and i felt something pop in my shoulder blade i was like well i'm down for the day like what the heck we're so old (laughs) so bad it's not okay We're well, still hot, though. We're still hot. We're beautiful. We're Pulling hot bitches. All 153 pounds of me. <laughs> <laughs> you are so hot. Shut That's up. boobs. <laughs> and butt. I don't know. My butt is very squishy and very low behind my knees at this point. 
<laughs> okay, what are we talking about today? Did you rain in a sense like you're doing my I job? Know. I know. It's because we're doing a double header. We have a harder time focusing. I know. Focusing. We do. We have a harder time focusing, and, and it's just like food, we're no. still working. Now it's time for a nap, but we have to keep we have to keep going. I don't take um, naps. We are actually talking about something important again. <laughs> I know all the other it was hard for us you to tell that we're going to talk about something important today, but it is. And it again comes down to the most very important subject of informed consent. And what we're talking today, we're lumping it all into one big subject is interventions in the newborn. Mm-hmm. So interventions that are commonly given. Once they're born. Yes. That are given to all newborns. I guess that's what a newborn is. Once they are born. Because they're <laughs> newly born. Unless you're Meredith, I need to. you to put that mic down right now. I was just now. thinking like amniocentesis and stuff, but that's different. That's what we're talking about. No. Yeah. This is stuff that Can happens. we just take that out and start over? No. No, we can't. Because then we'll have to take another five minutes out of our lives to record so we're just going to keep going so what we're talking about so there's three different things we're going to talk about mostly today and then we'll snip it on one of them because we've talked about it in length in other episodes um are you talking about circumcision yeah i I was thinking i was like snippet that's a weird use of a snipping word circumcision got it yep um so we're going to talk about two things that are offered during in the actual like right after you give birth to your baby and that is the vitamin k shot and the erythromycin eye ointment Mm -hmm. and then we're also going to talk about the hepatitis b shot because that is given to all offer to all babies at about what 12 hours or within the first 48 hours the first, first 48 hours if they're in the hospital yeah yeah and so basically all the things that would be not all the things that could be done to your baby but all the things that are routine to be done to your baby Mm -hmm. um before you would leave the hospital and like the culture of it has shifted so much because when i first started birth work back in like 2012 i remember transferring and we wouldn't even get information about these three things like they would just assume that people would want them but it's definitely shifted so that people are getting informed consent documents and they're being asked before even before the birth in the hospital yeah false my last birth i did at the hospital the nurse turned around and said we're gonna go ahead and do eyes and thighs if that's okay with you (gasps) and the mom said what now she goes you know all the injections and vaccines they get after the birth so we're just gonna go ahead and do that and she goes okay and i was like the fuck what what had you already talked to this mom about yes. everything and she just but didn't. it was a very the birth did not go as planned and she was exhausted yeah they even did the eye ointment despite her negative chlamydia gonorrhea test okay well i was fine well i was Sorry. I, it has gotten better but obviously there's still situations and yeah, honestly i'm only i can only speak for the clients that i've transferred with like i don't know about moms who aren't coming from places where the providers already know that they might be wanting different outcomes than the general population. I feel like for for clients that come in without a doula or anybody to help, it just kind of happens at the warmer and they don't really even say anything. I feel mm-hmm. like with my clients, I don't know if it's because the nurses know me or what, but they... I don't know that they're giving like an informed consent document, but it's like they're definitely being like... Yeah, they're definitely like, do you want the vitamin K shot? Yeah. They're saying that before they're giving it to the baby. That's what I've been seeing. Like, I agree. That typically was happening, but it did not happen last That's time. That's so interesting. Had you worked with this nurse before? <clears throat> no, I had not. And I think that this is so important because a lot of times, even in those informed consent documents, you are really only getting one side of the information, like the reason why they give them and I think it's very important and it's something that is important to me to know that anytime you're intervening in natural processes and we talk about this a lot in birth 
um, there is a risk for a risk factor from that. Like you're changing something that's supposed to be there. Um, so you need to get both sides of the story to be able to make an informed decision about whether that's a decision that's good for you or not. Yeah. And also like, I can't tell you how many times parents have asked like, well, what's it for? And they'll be like, Oh, so your baby doesn't go blind or, Oh, so your baby doesn't die. And it's like, or so your baby doesn't bleed to death consent. or to protect your baby from bacteria from when they're passing through the birth canal. It's like, yeah, that's kind of true, but it's like so dumbed down. Yeah. And it's not accurate. Like you actually, we talked about, well, but Wait, most of these, about, uh, it's accurate, it's accurate-ish. Yeah. And they're just repeating what they were told. So it's hard to just repeat what you're told once you do the research on your own, I think. Yeah. And and a lot of these things, um, we don't really have an agenda on this because a, a lot of these things we're talking about, we still feel like it's a very personal decision. Mm-hmm. And some of these decisions could really go either direction according to which risk factor is more important or scarier to you. Um, but we want people to have that choice. We don't want people to be pushed into a decision because sometimes we see that if something goes wrong, people will then do the research and be like, oh, well, I didn't know about X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. So it's like, we want you to know X, Y, and Z before you make that decision so that either way, what happens, you feel like you were informed that that was a possibility. And not like the, um, the woman you were talking about who works in the hospital and they just hand slips of paper to sign for circumcision that just says circumcision yeah that's not informed consent at all that's just your signature on a piece of paper that doesn't mean anything yeah it was basically saying you said i could circumcise your baby even if you know nothing about what it means so what in what um interventions are we gonna mention today i did laundry list them no i know but i mean what are we starting with so let's start with um I think, no, I think before vitamin K, let's start with an easy one because in the delivery room at the hospital, you're offered vitamin K and erythromycin. I feel like erythromycin is a faster one we can just like cover and then we can talk about vitamin K um, for a while. So erythromycin, it is an eye ointment that they put into your baby's eyes. It's an antibiotic. It's an antibiotic after your baby is born, typically within the first hour of life. Does any, do any of the midwives here want to tell us about what it's supposed to be for? It's supposed to protect your baby's eyes from blindness if it passes through a mom's vagina who has chlamydia or gonorrhea. And so this started sometimes, what, in like the 50s or 60s? It was, I want to say it was... I, th- I feel like it was before that. Yeah, it, it was it's been a long time. They started doing um, vitamin K. So I don't know if so it, then was at that time, that. they didn't have tests for chlamydia and gonorrhea. And babies were being born and they were getting a conjunctivitis and going blind from chlamydia or gonorrhea. And so they started this as a public health mess, uh, public health measure to prevent that from happening. Um, nowadays, we have chlamydia or gonorrhea tests and people usually get them in pregnancy. But as a public health measure, it still can be kind of iffy because unless you're swabbing someone every day, the, you don't know if their status has you changed don't, based on lifestyle. Yeah, the reality or, is the mom could have gone out and slept with someone that she didn't talk about. The dad could have done that and the wife doesn't know or the partner doesn't know. So as but, a public health measure, we can never be sure as providers whether you are going to be negative for chlamydia and gonorrhea unless you were swabbed and passed positive that day in labor. Yeah, but that's part of the informed consent process is you have to inform clients. And we always we offer the test usually at their initial prenatal visit with their routine labs. And then we check in again around 36 weeks and say, 
do you have any concerns about do we need to retest for any STIs like do you have any changes in your lifestyle or any concerns that might lead you to need need to be retested because that is part of the informed consent is acknowledging like things happen sometimes and you might and it's and it's always hard to have that conversation because sometimes really people is. like give you a really bad like people no, I have judge no, you really hard no, for saying that sometimes no problem I'm like and while we're doing your we just really straightforward about it you can't make I'm, it awkward right while I'm doing your GPS, but some people anything, get really gl- like weirded has anything out. Anything changed in your lifestyle that we need to talk about, or that you would like to have repeat STI screening today? Yeah, and then they'll think about it for a second, huh? And then if there's partners right there next to them, they're like, I don't know, do I? I and get real and like joke about it to like lie in the you know lie in it. Which is a real, which is a real thing that's like on the side of doing it. It's like there could be a change that somebody might not that that they wouldn't admit Unless in that situation. Um, they might think it could, but there's a lot of people that just wouldn't, they would, it's easier to be like, no, that didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, But every once in a while I'll have a mom that goes, yes, I would like to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I'm so glad that we asked because they might not have offered that information up in the first place. Exactly. So the point of me saying all that is not to say that everyone should get erythromycin eye ointment. It's just to say, this is why it's being done. But as part of the informed consent process, there is a really there's a really valid reason why people would not want it. And while I do, I obviously support informed consent 100 percent. I kind of am on the um, the lines of feeling that if you plan to say you don't want the eye ointment, then maybe you should go ahead and have the screening done because it's not very expensive. So and that obviously if you and your partner have never had sex before and you had sex on your wedding night and you got you know what i'm saying there are people out there that are actually like that fine that's where the informed there's consent. a lot of people that are a hundred percent sure of right their... and that's where the informed consent comes in but yeah. you know if you've had other sex partners if if you were in relationships before i think it's a great idea this is just me talking why not have the screening done if you've never been screened before mm-hmm. have it done that way you can say you know what i don't want the eye ointment and i'm 100 percent positive mm-hmm. that I'm not positive. Mm-hmm. So the risks to the eye ointment doing it are not high, but some of the risks, I mean, it is an anti, it's, it's an antibiotic and it's going in their eye. But it's local. It's local. Um, but the, I, I mean, I think like the biggest risks to that people talk about during the first hour, um, babies are supposed to be able to see for bonding reasons from like their mom's yeah. breast to like their, their mom's face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so like that, a cool design that we have. That would blur their vision. It so can, I have, it can cause irritation. Yeah, it can cause irritation redness. just like any other any other antibiotic or anything else you would do. Um, and like any other medication, there's a risk of an allergic reaction. Yeah. So clients of mine who want the antibiotic eye ointment, a lot of them will choose to delay it for at least that first hour or so so that they have that bonding time, the time to nurse before the baby's been messed with. Does that affect its... Um efficacy yeah sorry my kids just came back in it's very loud not that i know of like even at the hospital they've always been fine like delaying an hour they like to give the vitamin k and the eye ointment within within two hours an hour or two i think it's because symptoms usually present within the first 24 hours so it's a diligence to prevent the infection because it can occur so rapidly yeah, but they've always been fine with like delaying for like an hour or so. Yeah, we don't do it right away at the center or at home. I mean, if you're doing the vitamin K shot, for example, we would do it during the newborn exam. Yeah, which is usually two to three, two mm-hmm. hours two usually hours, after yeah. the birth. But for yeah. a long time, births in the hospital, they would do the erythromycin like, 
when they right were still away. taking the baby to the warmer yeah. right after they came out and right. then the baby would go back onto mom's chest with the eye ointment in. And so that was a concern for some people during that time period. Sorry. I feel like we keep having questions like, Oh, what's the answer to that? And I want to be like, I want to look it up. And I looked it up and apparently your through my sin has been used for eye ointment for newborns since like the 1800s. Oh, really? Well, yeah. they also were using something else. It hasn't always been erythromycin. There was a, some they other... They silver for a while. There was some other kind of drop. There was something else that wasn't silver that they used for a while that that caused a lot more um, eye sensitivity. Irritation, yeah. Oh, silver nitrate. That's what it was. Okay. Um, but now, for the most part, it's like an ointment, and it's erythromycin ointment. So, if you are chlamydia and gonorrhea free, and actually they're showing now that it only fights... Is it gonorrhea? Or it's chlam- less. So it's less effective in treating chlamydia. And they're even showing with gonorrhea it has like a 20% fail rate, which can continue to increase because of antibiotic resistance. Yeah. Chlamydia and gonorrhea are on the rise in our culture. And a lot of that is because it's been treated with antibiotics so much that it's becoming resistant to antibiotics. And so there's like super strains of chlamydia and gonorrhea. We out are there. just a sharing culture, aren't we? We're just oh, sharing just away. Sharing it all. So I mean, not anymore. Yes. <laughs> Coronavirus is going to change that. We'll see what happens. So what's next on our list to talk about? Um, vitamin K. They offer that in the... I have so much to say about vitamin K. I know. I mean, I'm interested. Go. Go ahead. Okay. What is vitamin K? Vitamin K is a vitamin that... that vitamin. ...is naturally produced in our gut and our intestinal system, our intestinal tract. But not until around day eight, mm-hmm. right? All babies, all mammal babies are born with lower than adult levels of vitamin K. This is physiologically normal. And necessary. We don't really we don't know, know why. why. There's theories. We're going to talk about the theories for why babies are born with less vitamin K than adults. Um, but basically, there is a very, very rare disorder that they call vitamin K deficiency bleeding. Mm-hmm. And so the numbers are, we looked them up. They mm-hmm. say for babies who don't get the vitamin K shot, are we talking about, first off, the numbers are different for the different kinds. So do we want to talk about the different kinds first? Yeah, let's do that. Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll dive in a little bit more into... So, so for babies that don't... It's very, very rare. But there's a small, small amount of babies, and we'll talk about the numbers in depth in a minute, who, if they don't get a vitamin K shot, will get something called vitamin K deficiency bleeding. There's three different stages of that. There's early... There's classic and there's late vitamin K deficiency bleeding. Mm -hmm. Vitamin K deficiency bleeding is not actually caused by the physiologically natural process of babies having less vitamin K than adults. It is usually caused either A, by trauma for like early um, vitamin K deficiency bleeding or for the more dangerous but rare late vitamin K deficiency bleeding. It's usually caused by an undetected liver problem or a problem in a baby's gut that prevents them from making their own clotting factors right because so, what vitamin k does because i don't know how we talked about what vitamin k does it helps blood it clotting. helps our gl- blood clotting so without vitamin k in newborn systems they are physiologically at an increased risk for bleeding because they do not have an element of their clotting factors present but again that's like a physiologically normal thing mm-hmm. and Be- so because there is 
research that shows that the levels of vitamin K affect the um, cell division process. And because after a baby's born, their cell division process is still so tightly controlled that the nature really tries to control how much vitamin K a baby gets. So like even like a vitamin even breast milk is yeah, not very rich in vitamin K. It's the same K as like iron. It's like it restricts how much vitamin K can go through your breast milk, showing that there's a reason in nature why babies are supposed to have these lower levels that gradually build up as their gut gets and the same goes for your placenta. I've had women say, I don't need the shot because I'm eating a lot of vitamin K enriched food. So my baby's getting them. And actually your placenta doesn't allow the vitamin K through. Like it, it allows tiny amounts through, whereas like sugar glucose, for example, gets mm-hmm. sucked up like it, you know, your placenta has like your placenta has a straw. So there's a reason you're not supposed to have the vitamin K. And yeah. to be clear, as Jess said, not having the injection of vitamin K doesn't make you more likely to get the bleeding it just makes it more likely that if you have this disorder it's you will not, you, you'll see it's it. it's like a band-aid vitamin k can prevent the disorder in some of the babies that would have gotten it but it's not the reason why they would have gotten it in the first place if you that were makes born sense. that way for a reason and again yeah. nobody knows why so like one of the theories is what jess was sharing another one i've heard is that babies' bloods are so much blood is so much thicker than ours anyways because there's such a higher blood volume at birth that if they had vitamin k and they were more likely to clot that might cause complications with clotting in general for newborns another theory is that and this would also be so they started giving the vitamin k shot you said what in the 50s or 60s um there was a lot of birth practices that could have increased vitamin K deficiency bleeding, like doing four set high forceps for a lot of babies. Um, there was like no, there was immediate cord clamping. And is that and, even high forceps and things like that? Birth trauma is that even causing vitamin K deficiency bleeding, or no, is that just causing it's trauma? It's causing trauma that and would they're be mixing it all. They're putting the it all in the same. It would cause bleeding from the trauma that wouldn't have been there if there hadn't been trauma. But the vitamin K puts a bandaid on it. Um, Maybe. And then there's another there's another um, theory that with um, delayed or natural cord clamping, the baby's blood needs to be more thin because the cord blood is full of stem cells. And so when a, stem cells basically can become any kind of cell they need to become, which is why they're being used so much in like cancer research and stuff. And so there's research that shows that those stem cells in babies' umbilical cord blood, when they get that full bolus of blood from their placenta, can then travel throughout their body and fix any damage that could have been done from the birth. But with the, with immediate cord clamping, and then if you give a vitamin K shot, the vitamin K shot makes the baby's blood a lot thicker than it would have been, making it harder for the stem cells to travel to the areas it needs to to, to repair damage. And so when we talk about vitamin K, I also like to talk about this. This is not... And a lot of people that are into vitamins know that there's a difference between natural vitamins and synthetic vitamins and the way that they are processed by the body. Vitamin K comes from like leafy greens, um, kelp, and it is processed through your gut and you need bacteria in your gut in order to make it. Um, 
the vitamin K in the shot is a synthetic version of the shot that is absorbed intramuscularly through the vein. So it's absorbed a lot differently. Not your gastric system. And it's given in such an intense amount. It's like they say 20,000 times the amount of an adult level. It like brings the blood up to even higher than adult levels. It doesn't even just bring it up to normal levels. And the reason that risk factors are so low with even despite having such a high level of vitamin K in the injection is because it is a slow release. So it releases slowly over months. And so I think that's why you don't see a lot of like negative outcomes from it. So that is just one thing to note about the method of release with that injection. So there's three different camps of thinking with the vitamin K shot. There's only the, three. Well, not only three, but what is the base camp? Uh, I break theory? it. Mm-hmm. I break it into three. The base camp theory is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So we're going to talk about the amount of numbers. Vitamin K deficiency bleeding is extremely rare. This isn't something that's happening to a lot of babies. Um, and so the first camp would be if, it's, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's, happening, like, it's happening normally and naturally for a reason. There's a physiological reason for why there's lower vitamin K. There's a physiological reason for why those levels are built up in the first week or so. And that if we mess with that, we really, because there hasn't been studies done it, we really don't know what we're messing up when we mess with those levels. Mm-hmm. That would be the first camp. Mm-hmm. The second one would be, um, that sounds scary enough to me that I just want a vitamin K shot and... Which you do have options within that as well now. Now it's more widely used that there's a preservative-free version of the injection. So you can get like the standard injection that they would use across the board in the hospital or now they offer a preservative-free option as well. Yeah. But the preservative-free still has preservatives. Yeah, just not <laughs> yes. as much. Just as, not as much. Whatever that means. That's another thing to think about is that it's not just vitamin K in the shot. Like there's other things too. So the people that are, and they can cause reactions in your body. Mm-hmm. So there are rare cases of like anaphylactic shock from vitamin k shot and we could talk about that more later too yeah i'll keep going with what you were saying and then the third one would be there's a middle ground that's being used in europe a lot um where people are using oral vitamin k it's actually offered to all parents in europe it's actually very standard there it's just there's not in the states there's not an oral vitamin k option approved by the food and drug administration available in america and so basically oral vitamin k it's going through the digestive tract like natural vitamin k would um it's not just one big dose like the shot is you would give it there's um, a couple different trains of thought around that as well but it's usually about a three dose method some people do it at birth a week and six weeks and then there's some who do a weekly regimen two days two weeks two months yeah there's a couple different options yeah and so those are the three different lines of thinking don't do anything just do what is the recommended by the cdc or do something in the middle ground why don't we talk a little bit about what the sorry i just burped in the microphone you're you're welcome um why don't you talk about some of the numbers So that we can really, because I feel like you can't have true informed consent unless you really understand what the numbers behind this are, because it sounds really scary, like your baby bleeding into its brain or its gut or somewhere else that could cause death sounds super, super scary. Mm -hmm. But when we really hear about the real numbers of who this is happening to, it can take away some of that fear. Not that it'll change your mind, but anytime you're making a, a choice out of fear, I feel like you're not taking in all the facts and all this information that we're we're taking this right now there's a couple articles taking it from we're taking it from the evidence-based birth article that takes a lot of studies into consideration we're gonna go to 
break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about the numbers of vitamin K deficiency bleeding and how much getting a vitamin K shot decreases those numbers and a couple other risks that might be involved. Um, And then we will do our, we'll talk a little bit about hepatitis B and our birth story of the week. Let's go to break. Cue the music. Oh, yeah. So today's sponsor for our episode is our very own Wine About Birth Teespring account. We haven't talked very much about our Teespring account since we released it, but we have a lot of really awesome products that you should go check out. Not only do we have funny and birthy shirts with all different sorts of sayings, but now we also have cups and other products with our logo on them. Today, I just got my very own coffee cup that has our logo on the front, and on the back it says, coffee or wine, drink it up, which, you know, you never know what's going to be in my cup. So go to our Teespring account. Um, If you're on Instagram, our logo, our link to that is in the um, link tree, and we can post it on our Facebook, and it's also, you can get to it from our website. Um, So check it out. Buy some stuff. Help support us in making our podcast and in reaching more and more people with the information that we are sharing. Thank you for listening to us as always and cheers back to our episode. (laughs) Welcome back from that delightful break. (laughs) I can't. I can't. So now that we're back from break, we're going to talk about something that's so exciting. So exciting. The levels and rates of vitamin K deficiency bleeding. Because when we tell our clients that it's really rare, we want them to know what that means. I'm already so falling asleep. So when we asleep. say that vitamin K deficiency bleeding is rare, we're saying, hey, that sounds scary. It's also really rare. So let's have some informed consent and then we'll have a party. Mm-hmm. I love informed consent parties. So I'll bite the bullet and be the boring one. Tell us the tell us the numbers of babies. So we're going to talk about late onset vitamin K deficiency bleeding because that is the most the dangerous type one. that they're usually mm-hmm. trying to prevent. Mm-hmm. So we're going to tell you the numbers of babies supposedly because the studies are not actually super conclusive because most babies get tra- it nowadays. Well, they also in the U.S. aren't really tracking the cases of late onset yeah. vitamin K deficiency. But according to the studies they have... Okay, ready for it. This is Numbers. the number of babies that get vitamin K deficiency bleeding with the with shot and without the shot. Yeah. So, okay. So, for babies who do not get any kind of vitamin K at birth, they don't get the shot, they don't get the oral, it's four. It's one in every 6,000 infants. You said oral. I did say oral as you danced. You are not helping. I am literally struggling to focus and you're talking about oh, oral sex. I lied. That's See? Oh my no. gosh, I did it again. You guys stop it. Okay, sorry. I'm talking in about your, oral so these are stats vitamin from, K. These yeah. are stats from Europe because Not we don't have D. those numbers in the States. But in Europe, it's 4.4 to 10.5 infants out of 100,000. Okay. So that's that, like nothing. That might be like... I'm sorry. For those babies, it's significant. But yes. in, in the big scheme of things, it's very, very rare. 4.4 to 10 something... 10.5. Babies out of a hundred thousand who get will the shot, get, who, who, who do, do not, not get the shot, will huh. get vitamin K deficiency bleeding that could lead to a brain bleed or bleeding into their gastrointestinal tract. What you said, twenty percent of those babies. No, nope. I said fifty percent will develop a brain bleed. Okay, fifty percent, four point four to ten point five percent who 10. develop 5 babies. late onset. It's not percent. Oh, sorry, four point four to ten point five babies out of a hundred thousand yes that get 
vitamin K deficiency bleeding, 50% will get a brain bleed, yes. which can and be more serious. Of that 50%, 20% it results in an infant death. Okay. So breaking those numbers down, it's minuscule. It's about one in a hundred thousand. Yeah. If but, you don't get the shot. But at the it's same not time, one in a hundred thousand. Yeah, it's definitely less than that. It's less than that. So what um what I thought you just though, said it was four to ten out of every one hundred thousand. Yes. That if get you, vitamin K deficient late onset vitamin K deficiency bleeding. Half of that will get a brain bleed. I hear you. Bleed. And but they'll have the deficiency of that. I feel myself leaning towards getting the shot right now. If there's if my kid has a ten in one hundred thousand chance of getting well, it, it's your choice. That's, yes, that's no, I know. About. I'm just like, huh? I teach this all the time, and this is why my. But I want to ask you because when you you hear the numbers, there's also other things that have so like you do VBACs all the time, right? What are the chances of uterine rupture? Point two percent, which is actually a lot higher. This is like point zero 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 something percent mortality yeah like but it sounds really high but it's like when you're talking about four babies out of a hundred thousand it's super i think you might be thinking as four in a thousand this is because most of our stats are out of a thousand this is 4.4 i hear you thousand it's very similar to the number of babies who will die from circumcision um and they push that on people and and people don't really talk about babies dying from circumcision like it sounds it's scary zero, zero, the zero, number zero, four four okay I zero, feel better now. zero zero four four i think it's different when you're looking at something that like um a risk for your baby mm-hmm. like circumcision no i know what the risks are as opposed to a risk for myself you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. if you do this, it could happen to you. But if you do this, this could happen to your baby. But so you it also does have to weigh it against the fact that you are, if you give the vitamin K shot, we don't really know how to quantify the risks of giving the vitamin K shot. Right. But you are messing with a natural process. So we don't actually know the risk of babies that will have a problem from getting a vitamin K shot because that that really hasn't been Or done. if it even works. Honestly. So there are some babies that will get a vitamin K shot and will still get late onset vitamin okay. K deficiency bleeding. And what's that percentage? Do uh, we know? This is if they get the shot, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. If they get the shot, there's still, it's from zero to 0.62. So it's less than one infant per hundred thousand. So it definitely decreases the risk. That's like proven mm-hmm. the shot does decrease the risk, but definitely proven. It's not 100%. No. And their numbers with the oral vitamin K are also promising in the sense that it decreases. Mm-hmm. So it goes from what we said, the 4.4 to the 10.5, decreases with the oral to 1.4 to 6.4. And where were these studies done? Because I know Europe, we don't... Because we don't track numbers yeah. in the States. That's what I thought. So um, that's just... It's very... It's well known that there's different... Like she said earlier in the podcast there's different levels of intervention you can choose nothing mm-hmm. and have a 4.4 to 10.5 percent risk it's not percent. Sorry, i keep saying percent out, out of, of 100,000 100, you could do the oral and have a 1.4 to 6.4 out of 100,000 risk or you can do the shot and do zero to 0.62 but the thing to know about all of this is none of it is 100 percent yeah and so we it, don't know what the long-term risks are for the vitamin k shot I, no and i also like to point out that um 
there's a lot of other things we do in birth that probably have higher risks For than sure. this that mm-hmm. because we don't focus on them, we're not breaking it down like this. So like even using Pitocin and labor, we could break that down and talk about what's the percentage of babies that have, I don't know, like they go into fetal distress and, and die in utero during labor. It might be a similar number. We don't know. We don't have those statistics, but we know that there's that that happens. But when you're talking about such small numbers for that, those 10 babies, it's 100 percent. But on a population scale, it's so low. And we're making this decision for every baby for right and, and sometimes without informed consent without and we don't know really what we're doing to the babe all the other babies because we don't know the risk of message messing with that natural vitamin k process mm-hmm. and also to note too if you do start seeing symptoms of vitamin k deficiency bleeding at all their treatment would be a vitamin k shot yeah so i understand that there's risks if you baby if your baby has like a brain bleed or something internally that you can't see obviously that's a risk but if you start sort of noticing symptoms like they're bleeding from different places that's more visible you could go get a vitamin k shot once you start seeing symptoms typically though you don't see the symptoms until it's too late to treat so i think a lot of the late onset which would be what after a week or is it after 24 hours for vitamin the k late is a more week. than that a week it's after a week yeah but yeah. it can be anywhere up to like eight weeks yeah so i think a lot of times things start to happen and there may not be enough time to fix right. the problem so yeah. there so even if you do if your baby doesn't die i do think they still have a higher chance of having um long term they do yeah and so, I'm just the which other goes side. By, yeah, which goes back to that <laughs> camp of it's like there's just, the people that are like that risk wall is real is small and also intervening in the natural process may also have a risk. And then there's people that are like, that sounds scary enough to me. I'm OK with taking the risk with intervening in that natural process, which is why it comes down to there's no right answer to this. It's just like yeah. we can just share the numbers to give informed consent. And it has to be a personal decision for which risk factor seems scarier. I also think I'm actually really enjoying this because I feel like your language around it has shifted from when we first were working together. Just hearing you right now. Because I feel like maybe the numbers have changed since we started doing our education, but you seem more freaked out by the numbers than how I've heard you express in the past. In the last year, I've watched a baby develop a brain bleed and seize and stop bleeding or stop breathing. Did, Did that baby have the vitamin K shot? He did. He did have the vitamin K shot and it didn't happen until it was maybe day three or four of life because he was perfect and he was perfect at his two days. Which which goes to show like it's not it's not foolproof. He had the vitamin K shot. It doesn't. Right. And so I tell people like, well, they'll say, but what do you think? Does it work? And I'm like, I don't know. Some of my kids have had it. Some of them have not. But I've seen a baby who had the vitamin K shot within the first two hours of life and go home and then later turn blue, have seizures and be on anti um, epileptic medication for six months. And I feel like he's supposed to go on to be normal. But now I don't know. Did the vitamin K shot save his life or did it not work? I have no idea. Yeah, Yeah, because if that had happened and he hadn't had the vitamin K shot, we'd probably be using it as a story to support the vitamin K shot. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I honestly have no idea. Which is why it's one of those things where there's just there's no easy answer for that. And so there's some people that are that feel really strongly about the natural processes and not messing with how nature works, especially if it's going correct 
directly. And there's some people that are like, no, let me prevent problems before they happen. Yeah. Or there's people who see what's going on in Europe and know that that's a standard of care and find that that's the best fit for them. Yeah. So it so, really just depends. And so there's also like when it comes to risk factors from the vitamin K shot, because I don't think we've talked about that. Um, the most commonly known ones is that there there is other ingredients in the vitamin K shot. Um, and so a baby could have a reaction to those. Um, there is some studies that show we were talking about this a lot before we were, the show <laughs> because there are some studies that were were done that showed that there's an increase in childhood leukemia due to the vitamin K shot um, because of how vitamin K affects cell division. There's a lot of other studies that show that that's not a risk, um, but there's not a lot of studies done either way on it. So there's we can't say conclusively whether vitamin K increases the risk of childhood leukemia or not. Yeah, just based on the articles I'm reading, it does like a, a review of the case studies and it says that it can't conclusively state that it doesn't or yeah. does as saying that mostly there needs to be more research. But the information that's out there does not po- prove causation or a correlation between the vitamin K shot and leukemia. But again, I think the takeaway is that there isn't enough research as well. Yeah. And I don't think anybody's has any has any plan to do this research, which also goes back to it's there's no easy answers. Yeah. And I mean, I do when I tell my clients about my informed consent document does include the risks and benefits of the injection. But I do state that it is a super low risk shot with the current information we have. It's a, it, it seems to be a low risk shot. It seems to also be a low risk of vitamin K deficiency bleeding. So basically it turn it, it goes down to what is the parent's comfort level? Mm-hmm. Which is where beautiful informed consent comes in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah. A lot of our clients don't want to do it because of pain upon the injection, but we find that if the parents are breastfeeding and that can be like a comfort measure for the baby, that can be really comforting for both the baby and the mom. Yeah. I mean, I know for myself personally, um, and this is, I don't, I don't, it's not saying this is for other people, for myself personally and for my children, I'm a big fan of like the natural processes and if it's not broken, don't mm-hmm. fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not true for everybody else. So for me, it's like, I don't want to mess with their blood clotting levels, but other people feel differently and they feel like they, they want to do everything they can to prevent that potential mm-hmm. rare problem. I find the most consistent response that I have with my clients is they want to wait and see how the birth goes and see if there is significant bruising from the birth, if it was long or drawn out, or if the baby seemed to be in distress during I think, labor and see if that, I think that would be more, decision. I think that would be more likely to um, cause early um, vitamin K deficiency bleeding, not necessarily late, which is the more dangerous one, right. because if there was a brain bleed or something caused by the birth, it would happen right away. Not um, three, not one to eight weeks later. Right. And also, I do want to say, though, like as I was reading this evidence based birth article again, I noted that it actually doesn't say that there's proof that traumatic births increase the risk of vitamin K, but it is something that still is used within the medical community, despite the lack of evidence, because because we're trying to prevent problems and we're trying to cover our asses. Right. Yeah. And we want to we want to try and make sure babies are safe. It's just mm-hmm. one of those things that it's really hard and it became it became the standard of care. And so if people don't want to do it, it's going against the standard of care, which doesn't mean it's a bad decision. Well, and I also feel like um if there's moms out there who aren't doing research and aren't, re- they're not looking up anything. They're just walking into the hospital mm-hmm. saying, I don't know, then that's what they're going to do yeah. because they're going to cover all bases. Yeah. 
um, if they feel like the, it's safer to have the vitamin K shot and the hepatitis B shot um, and the eye ointment, they're just going to go ahead and do that because the mom hasn't done any research for herself or her baby. Yeah. So somebody has to make that decision. Which, so I do understand why that happens. Which I know me, like, I feel like I'm okay because this is my podcast. I'm okay with talking about my personal feelings, but I very often have clients look at me and say like, well, how, what do you do for yeah. your kids? And I very often say, I don't really feel comfortable telling right. you what I do with my kids because what I do with my kids comes about from a lot of research and me feeling very strongly about it and knowing well, why your, I'm doing your personal it. personal philosophy about raising them too. Yeah, and I don't want someone to just say, well, this is what Jess does, so that's what I'm going to do without knowing all those reasons. I've always struggled with that as a midwife though because it's like you want to you wanna like know that your clients are adults and they can take into account your choices without letting it completely inform their decision 100%. A lot of people don't but do that though. I agree though. If people aren't going to do the research and they're going to base their decision completely off of your choices, then that's definitely something that you want to be and research of. is very overwhelming. So sometimes it is easier to just be like, as evidenced by my me, twenty page, yeah, tell evidence me, based birth. Tell me what combiner. to do. <laughs> um, let's. Uh, so because of time, we need to move on to the last um, intervention we we're going to talk about, which is the hepatitis B shot. I feel which like that one's easy. We're not going to dive super deep into that um, because. I just feel like it's a, a super huge topic that could get into vaccinations in general. But let's just talk about what hepatitis B is. All babies are offered the hepatitis B shot um, before they leave the hospital. Mm -hmm. um, that did not start happening until 1991, I believe. So when I was a baby, like me, I didn't get a hepatitis B shot until I was 18 and I went into nursing school. Um, but starting in 1991, they started giving it to babies. They put it on the CDC's recommended vaccine schedule. And they give it to you before you leave the hospital. I I feel like Ace Ventura holding, his, I know, go, holding go. his butt closed. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just open there and be like, ah. There's just, so, it's just, it, there's so much. Like once you scrape the tiny little thin crust of vaccinations and the CDC and the owners of the pharmaceutical companies and the fucking billionaires that are making more billions of dollars <laughs> off of vaccines. It's just like, you just go forever. You know, oh, it's this. definitely a rabbit hole. It is a rabbit hole, but the it's bottom like line, Alice in Wonderland the bottom hole. line for me for the hepatitis B shot is simply, do you as the mother have hepatitis B? No. Then your baby doesn't need to be vaccinated against it because there's no way to get it unless you're having sex, breastfeeding some from someone who's um, Hep B positive, or sharing Is it drug needles. That you can get hepatitis B from breast milk. Well, theoretically, you can get any virus <laughs> from <laughs> breast milk, such as HIV, okay. right? Depending on the baby. So I don't know what the, the exact. I don't statistics even know. If, are. I don't know if anyone knows, but um, I'm pretty sure you can't. I mean. I have read that you can get hepatitis B from breast milk. That's why they push the hepatitis B shot. Because if you have hepatitis B and you're nursing your baby, your baby's going to get hepatitis B. That is what I have heard numerous Not times. Necessarily. Well, we know so, that. So like there's an article. So hepatitis B is a sexually blood-borne disease. Most people get it either from sex, sharing needles, um, which is why it was never on the CDC schedule before. So the risk factors in babies, like you said, where if your mom has hepatitis B and also if for some reason a baby needs a blood transfusion, there's a small risk of a baby getting hepatitis B. Other than that, um, 
the risk of getting hepatitis B to an infant is practically is like zero percent. But so they, then why are we? But they added it? it to the CDC schedule because they figured let's start giving it to babies before they're at a risk when they're preteens, when which is they had been giving it when they were like 12, 13. But it was high. It was harder to so know when children were starting to be sexually active. Or and it was also to harder to, to get kids to it's just like the older they get, the harder it is to, in, so to get people to get shots. Let's back up for a minute. Why do we get the Tdap in pregnancy, according to the CDC? Pertussis. Why? To prevent, so that maternal antibodies can pass along per- through your... Through your breast milk. Yeah. Interesting. Why don't we just give it to the baby when they're born? Um, I don't know. I'll tell you. you I'll answer you that. Want- I can answer that for you. It's because you cannot make antibodies from vaccines at birth. No, you know, you're right. Your immune system isn't equipped to do that. They're not equipped so, to do that for a while. Right. So, so. It, the CDC itself is saying you cannot give a baby a Tdap shot. It doesn't, it's worthless. So it doesn't do anything. But that's but the same I feel thing like that that's happens. like acknowledged though within the community is people acknowledge that the Hep B vaccine no, isn't effective. They don't no, they do not in the human community, but oh. like in the veterinarian community, they do. Like everywhere you look about puppy vaccinations, they say that puppy vaccinations are given so often because maternal antibodies keep the vaccinations from working for a certain amount of time the same thing is true in humans um which is why there's been studies done showing that parents should stop breastfeeding for a little while before vaccinations because it increases antibodies because maternal antibodies mess with so so when i was um listening to an npr episode they were interviewing someone from the cdc and the person who was doing the interviewing said so then that's really interesting then why do we give the hepatitis b shot at birth and the answer was to get the mother used to vaccinating yeah look it up it's on there and i'm like what the fuck because we're just shooting this shit into our kids for no reason so i tell my clients whether you are pro-vaccine or Mm anti-vaccine you can feel very comfortable passing on the hepatitis b shot for now Mm-hmm. because they're not doing anything with especially, it especially and i tell this to my clients especially if they're pro vaccine it's like because even if like when you're if your baby's 12 hours old and gets a hepatitis b vaccine you don't know enough about your baby's behavior yet to know if their behavior changes after vaccination so it's a lot harder to see side effects from a vaccination whereas if even if you get it at the two-month visit which you would anyway because they give it at birth two months and eight six months or something um you would know your baby better to know if there's a marked change in behavior um do we want to talk about those since we are feeling a little intense about this you want to share the risks of the hep b vaccine sure we talked about that yeah because according to the vares website which not everyone goes by because it's like it's it's the website that people go to to report side effects from vaccines, both doctors and people can go to report side effects that happen after getting a vaccine. The hepatitis B is one of the vaccines that um, has a higher level of reported side effects. Why don't you go into what you're reading on evidence-based birth or whatever you're doing there? Oh, you mean my informed consent document? Your informed consent document. Um, All right, so... If you haven't read Dr. Sears' vaccine book, it's amazing. And there's a lot it's of really, really awesome vaccine books out there, but I really appreciate his um, book because it is for people who are just like diving into vaccines and want an unbiased opinion. I feel like he does a really good job of just providing information. Um, so both vaccines have aluminum in them. Oh, yeah. Hepatitis um, B has quite a bit. Yeah, at least 250 micrograms. Yeah. 
and aluminum which if you look up are you gonna talk about this if you look up the they don't have they don't have max dosage for vaccines they've given vaccines a loophole for aluminum but they do have max dosage for babies and like ivs and stuff the amount of aluminum they can have and the hepatitis b vaccine exceeds the amount of aluminum that is the max dosage what they did was they whatever what they took the so they have put in num they have put numbers out for limitations but what they did is they took the combo vaccine with the most aluminum in it mm-hmm. and said that that was the safe max dosage for vaccines for that specific vaccine no i'm talking about what they're calling this like there's other standards they have like in the NICU or for babies that are of certain birth weights where because even in like IV flushes and stuff there's a certain amount right. of aluminum so they have levels of aluminum that are acceptable for for babies right and um they don't apply that same standard to vaccines right. kind of and gotten the, like a the a vaccine pass. schedule far exceeds those levels yeah but isn't that crazy though that they said that the ex- acceptable dosage for vaccines was because of the highest Just level of the within highest a dose. certain a highest dosage in a already existing vaccine that's insane it really it's is. bullshit that's so, what it is yeah so aluminum okay so aluminum what aluminum does is it causes it's known to cause neurological damage um it's but, a heavy metal yeah it's a heavy metal so then also the Recombivax brand, which is a combo vaccine that has the hepatitis B in it, has formaldehyde in it, which as we know is a carcinogen. Mm-hmm. So that sucks. Mm-hmm. I really like the article. There's a, there's a really good article about hepatitis B. Is it safe for your baby? And it actually goes into the studies about how well the hepatitis B vaccine works, even if like a baby is born to a hepatitis B positive mom. So even in those situations, like it's not clear cut, like it's very murky. It's not like the studies show, oh, if you have a hepatitis B positive mom and you give the hepatitis B vaccine, it prevents hepatitis B. It's like, a, a, it's so much deeper than that. Like it can actually make it go more chronic and it's a long article, but it's super good. I like encourage anyone who's like feeling like they want to research that to read that article. I'm just sitting here like, are you trying not to dive into vaccines in general? (laughs) Yeah, but it just, it just boggles my mind. Like if you, if you bother to scratch the surface at all, you realize it's not black and white. Now you may still come out on the pro vaccine and you may still come out on the anti vaccine. Yeah. But if you start to do research, I feel. Or just anti that vaccine, not in general. Right. But, but what I'm saying is like you, you start to understand why some people would make the informed consent choice to not give their baby the hepatitis B or any other vaccine for that, yeah. for that, you know, reason or yeah. matter or whatever. You make the decisions that's best for you and your family, but do it based on information. Yeah. Not on fear, not on not wanting to know the heart, ask the heart flash. questions. <laughs> Are you embar- going through menopause? Are you embarrassed right now? No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm hot because I think her blood pressure is probably a little elevated. Maybe I'm having high blood pressure. It's just crazy to me how we just need to support each other in these decisions and understand that informed consent is is important. Parents need to be supported and they need to not be shamed if they're trying to make good decisions for their babies. And on that note, you know, I think we're going to skip our birth story of the week because we uh, started to run overtime. But the last intervention that is like given to babies just routinely, and we've covered it a little bit is circumcision we've covered it a lot and like we've said there's so many people that go back and forth on like the death rates of vitamin k and hepatitis b I can't believe you're talking things. about circumcision when we've already gone over i know we're just mentioning we're it. just mentioning it because it is routinely offered to babies in the hospital um 
But there's a lot of times where the side effects of circumcision are just skimmed over and offered like it's no big deal. Whereas if you say, I don't want a vitamin K shot, it's like you're a bad, you're a bad parent. Your baby has a 5.6 and 10,000 and 100,000 chance of having a brain bleed. Like, honestly, if you circumcise your baby, you have a very similar chance of your baby having a penis bleed and dying. Which is where my point comes in. It's all a fucking political agenda and a money-making market. It doesn't matter what the parents want or think. It's who's going to, who's going to win. Which is why we as providers like to encourage parents to get real information and then respect them when they make their choices because it's really easy to make one thing sound super scary and make another sound super scary because people trust us. And so it's like we need to give the real facts and let people make decisions and then respect those decisions. Yeah, because it's your baby. So you need to listen to all this. You're going to live with the side. You're going to live. I mean, the baby will. But also you as a parent are like the people at the CDC are not taking your baby home and dealing mm-hmm. with the consequences of what of your decision like you are. You have to empower yourself as a parent to make the decisions that you feel best with as a parent. I mean, this, the head of the CDC will go home with less money because you just took it out of his pocket for not giving the hepatitis B shot. But that's a completely other. Topic. You know what the head of the CDC probably went home with, too? I don't know. Less head because they got circumcised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they are sleeping on a really comfortable mattress. <laughs> They're so rich. Really comfortable. They're so rich, even though they don't have all those fine touch might be things and glide mechanisms. Shoved underneath it. So if you want to know so more about money. circumcision, listen to our circumcision episodes because we dove into that rabbit hole real deep in there. And if you want to know more information about the vitamin K or erythromycin eye ointment or hepatitis B shots, just do your research but don't just google it and click the first website that comes up i mean that's going to be whatever site is paying and if you're interested in hearing like or seeing the article article sorry i burped in my mic again the articles that we are referencing just send us an email along with your birth story and we will send you the articles because we want you to be able to check the references that we are giving out as well but it's time to end this episode sorry we got a little bit um intense (laughs) Super. Dense. Not gonna lie, I was. I mean, I called chunks. So I'm not really sure what was up. I have a feeling it's gonna. Well, I called Kim Kimberly. Really I called Kim Kimberly and made a reference to curbing. So <laughs> it was intense. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just get you called her Kimberly. Yeah. I just get so freaked out when people judge me specifically or other people for for decisions that were made after months if not years of research not just because the cdc says you should do this and because you care deeply about your children i do somewhat care deeply about my children (laughs) shut up you're so dumb (laughs) all right we gotta end this episode uh so we're just gonna come to the climax here it's gonna be grand finale and all we have to say is cheers cheers jeez